Good morning. Our scripture for today comes from Acts chapter 2, verses 32 through 41. And it says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, every one whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Amen, amen. Thank you guys so much for joining us. It is good to see you. It is always good to gather and start our week in worship. Man, I am grateful that you're here. If you've got your Bible with you, and I know you do because I asked you to bring it last week, go ahead and turn with me to Acts chapter 2. We're going to actually look at that whole story that Lindsay just read a snapshot from. Now, if you didn't bring your Bible, we always have them available for you on the way into the worship space. If you don't own a Bible, please feel free to go ahead and grab one of those. Take it home with you. That's our gift to you. We want everyone to have a copy of God's Word. Because as we make our way through this study, man, I just want you to be able to see for yourself the story as it unfolds. Because we just started last week a brand new study. It's going to take us a few weeks to make our way through the, the book of Acts, the story of God building his church. And we're going to see what a special privilege it is that we get to play a part in it. So we're picking up the story today in Acts chapter 2. Like I said, Lindsay read us just a snapshot of it. But this is, if you've spent much time in or around church, if you've ever read about the history of the church, this is one of the most famous chapters, one of the most famous moments in all of church history because this is where it all started. And I don't know about you, like I love to look back and see where different businesses and movements start. And I just, I love it. Maybe because we're part of a startup church, but like I love to look back at these businesses or these industries or these movements that have changed the global landscape, brands that we're so familiar with, like Apple. And it just starts in an inconspicuous garage in 1976. And I see those things, and I think they're just so encouraging. And there's so many stories like that. Google, very similar looking garage in the next year. Amazon, 94, Disney. Okay, I'm not sure like if that's a real photo, but Disney, 1923, a little wooden shack. And today they've got an empire that spans the globe. And then Mattel, they're the biggest producer of toys in the history of the world. All of these movements, all of these businesses, all of these industries who are household names started in just a small, inconspicuous setting. And I love looking back and seeing where it all started. What is the catalyst that caused it to get going? Like, how did these brands become household brands? In fact, I got so excited when I look at pictures like that. I thought 
what a good idea would it be for us as a church? Like if we were to start a church, we could move from like one location to the next, like four times in the first two years. So someday when people look back, they'll be like, man, this movement across the city of Orlando, it started at an elementary school, a Presbyterian church, another church, and now middle school. I don't know if that was as much my idea or COVID or a couple crazy Presbyterians that forced it on us. But nonetheless, I love when we look back, I'm just kidding, Doug. I love when we look back and we see that these, this is the place and these are the people that started the whole thing, that set it in motion, that propelled it forward. So last week, last week was Acts chapter 1, the very first chapter, and we, we saw after the ascension of Jesus, meaning after the famous death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, he spent 40 days with his disciples, his friends and his closest followers, appearing to them off and on over a period of 40 days. And at the end of those 40 days, when he had spoken to them about the kingdom of God, and he had set before them the most important things about who he was, what he lived and died and rose again to accomplish, he ascended back to the Father's right hand. In the church at that time, about 120 people, they gathered together in an upper room somewhere in the city of Jerusalem. They gathered in a rented space and they just prayed and they prayed and they prayed that God would pour out his spirit as he promised. And as we turn the page today in Acts chapter 2, we see God coming through on that promise. So if you've got your Bible, Acts chapter 2, now here's my commitment to you. We will get done before we have to be out of this rented space, all right? So it's a lot of text to cover. I'm going to read it. We're not going to talk about everything, but I want you to see the story as it unfolds because it is the story truly of God building his church, and this is where it starts, all right? Acts chapter 2, verse 1. Follow along with me as I read. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, meaning the disciples and the 120 people. Suddenly... There came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire. Your translation might say something like tongues of fire, divided and came to rest on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues, other languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. At the, at the sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that, e that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God, and all the people were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocked, saying, they're filled with new wine. All right, and so we read that in its entirety because this is the moment where it all starts. Like this is the moment that the prophets previewed for thousands of years. This is the moment where God poured out his Holy Spirit to dwell with and in his people. And it was so incredible. It says it was like something like tongues of fire. And when I read that, I realized, like, we don't even know exactly. When Luke was recording this, he's, he didn't know exactly how to describe it. What are tongues of fire? He says, I don't know, something like it. But it was a visible, audible outpouring of God's presence on his people. His Holy Spirit filled his church, and they began to speak 
in other tongues. And, it's, and the, the people, they're, they're gathered together. How could they not be? It'd be like if there was a car crash outside. Everybody runs to see it, right? Because it's such a loud noise. There's such a, a loud noise that everybody in the city gathers around to see what is it that's taking place. And they're amazed when they get there because all of these guys, these regular, ordinary guys, start speaking fluent languages from around the world. It would be like, it'd be like, honestly, like if a, like, Every culture, they have some group of people that just kind of epitomizes people of lesser intelligence, right? Like for us, it'd be like if someone from USF showed up and could speak fluent any other language, English for that matter, right? We'd be like, how do they do this? They're from USF. And for them, it's like, aren't these Galileans? Like these are like ordinary people. How are they speaking in the language of my people? And the truth is, it was God pouring out his spirit so God's people could point to God. But that's not even what I want to hone in on. What's so fascinating is when and where God chooses to pour out his spirit. Because we read this 2,000 years later. I don't think any of us are Jews. And we don't know what is Pentecost. Well, Pentecost was one of the, the three pilgrimage feasts of the Jews. And while the Passover feast might be, have more theological significance, stemming from the book of Exodus and the foundation of the nation, Pentecost, they say, was one of the most well-attended feasts, just because of practically where it landed on the calendar. It took place after the harvest. So after the people had gathered their grain, gathered their wheat, gathered their crop, they could step away. It'd be hard to step away for Passover while they were in the harvest. And so people from all around the world, Jews from all around the known world, they would make this pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to their holy city, to celebrate God's provision for his people. And the population of Jerusalem would swell as many people made their way from all across the known world, which tells me something about who God is and how God works, that God meets us where we are. Like God could have chosen any moment in any place in human history to pour out his spirit. But he was fulfilling all the prophecies and promises made to the Jewish people. And so he took a, he took a day, he took a time when the, the, the Jews had gathered to Jerusalem. He met them where they are. It's, it reveals that God isn't a God that requires us to have everything in order before we can come to him. But God comes to us perhaps when we least expect it. And all of us, if we were to share our story, we would say we met God in as many different places as there are people, right? For me, just to be fully transparent how God has worked in my life, God met me right where he was supposed to be. Now, have you ever like, when you ever get, I know couples, you would never fight over this, but you ever like look for something as a husband and a wife and you ask your wife where the keys are and she tells you they're in the drawer where they go. And it's like, no, honey, like I just looked in the drawer. There is, the keys weren't there. And then it's quickly like, well, you must have moved them. You drove the car last, which she responds, well, it's my car. So, but nonetheless, the keys are there. Like, and I, I look everywhere across the house. I'm like looking under her bed and on her nightstand and in her dresser. And sure enough, where are the keys? Like right where they're supposed to be, right? Like that's the story of my life. But I met Jesus right where he was supposed to be. Like I met him at church. Like and I know that's not everybody's story, but I, I was blessed to grow up in a good family, in a good church. Uh, I came to know and fall in love with Jesus. I gave my life to Jesus when I was nine years old in a church. I tried to follow Jesus as much as I could through youth ministry and Bible college. But I'll be honest, like I really met Jesus when I was serving him in a church. When I got to this point where it's like, I really needed God to show up. That's where I met Jesus. Some of you have a very similar story. Like you met Jesus, your family took you to church, vacation, Bible school, and praise the Lord for that. Some of you, it was in a crazy place. Some of you have told me you found Jesus in our church because Jesus met you on Google. Like somehow, like this is how we know God is a sovereign God because I have zero SEO 
intellect in my mind at all. Like some of you Google church near me and somehow this is the church that came up and you're here and you're getting saved and you're being sanctified, going to war with sin because God met you on Google. Some of you, it was uh, in a gym. I don't know if that's true. I've actually never heard that story, but surely God's in the gym somewhere. For some of you, it was in a sorority. Like you show up at school and you're, you're looking for a group of people that are a lot like you and you find a sorority of people trying to follow Jesus. And so God just one after another has gathered you to his church. Some of you, it was in the scripture. You hit a hard season in life and you found the old Bible, you dusted it off. And for the very first time, the stories that you've read a hundred times came to life. Some of you, it was you were singing a song. I, I find this hard to believe. Some of you swear you met Jesus by listening to Christian radio. I was just listening to the radio and I found Jesus. Like, well, they say he's there. I've listened to the radio. I'm not so sure. Nonetheless, God meets us where we are. That God doesn't require that we have everything put together. We don't have to have life figured out. God meets us, meets his people where his people are. Verse 14, it says, but Peter standing with the 11, lifted up his voice, and he addressed them. Meaning he addressed the crowds that have now gathered together to hear the things that God was doing, or to at least observe the things. Men of Judah, he says, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. I love this because Peter, all throughout the Gospels, is always the first one to go first, right? He's always the one to go first. And sometimes it's like this incredible moment where the disciples are gathered together and Jesus is asking questions. And, and Peter's the one, he's like, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And for 2,000 years, when people put their faith in Jesus, they repeat that same confession of faith. And Jesus says, yes, Peter, and, and on this rock, I will build my church. And then sometimes Peter's the first to go first and he looks like a total idiot, right? Like he jumps out of the boat, he starts walking towards Jesus and he starts sinking. And the other disciples, they're like, well, we stayed in the safety of the boat. Nonetheless, Peter was always the first to go. And he certainly wasn't going to pass up an opportunity to preach the first gospel sermon. God gathered a crowd, the spirit was poured out, and Peter stood up to preach. Hear how he starts his sermon. Again, so often, so often when you read this, like it's just this perfect story. Hear how Peter starts his sermon. He says this, he says, for these people, remember he's got a crowd gathered around, several thousand strong, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's never a good day when you have to start your sermon telling someone you're not drunk. It's hard to start a sermon, I'll be honest, because like the worship team does an incredible job uh, leading us to, to God's throne and worship, and you're excited, and you're humbled, and you're anxious to hear from God, and there's this confession piece, and this communion piece, and then I stand up, and it's like, is he going to say some kind of dumb joke? Is he going to stumble over his words? Does he know? Like, it's always hard, but Peter says, I promise we're not drunk, it's 9 a.m., which I'm not even sure is a great defense because I've been to UCF games that kick off at noon and tailgating starts before 9 and people are drunk before 9 a.m. So nonetheless, that's Peter's defense. I know you guys have no idea what's going on here. I promise I'm going to tell you, take my word for it, we're not drunk. And what follows is one of the most incredible sermons ever preached, ever recorded. He says, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days, he starts quoting this Old Testament prophet, Joel. He says, in the last days, it shall be that God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit and they will prophesy. Meaning, I will pour out my spirit with my people and they will put forth the works of God and the word of God. That's what prophecy is 
in its simplest form. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, that great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so Peter says, like, we're not going to dig into all of this, but basically what Peter says is God is doing something here. Like he's doing something special. He's doing something significant. He's doing something that he promised long ago through his prophets, that he's poured out his spirit. This is exactly what you read about in the ancient scriptures when you went to Sabbath school, these Jews, that God is doing something through his spirit. And it is in this season of human history that man, when they put their faith in Jesus, can be saved. Now we're going to talk about what that means in just a moment. But Peter is setting up the sermon. He says, hey, guys, we are not drunk. I'm glad I've got your attention. Hear what I say. Everything you have heard about God is coming true in your midst. You are seeing God pour out his Holy Spirit. I know that you have no no idea what is about to take place, Peter says. In fact, we don't know. We're just kind of one step ahead of you. But God is doing something so special You don't want to miss the invitation to experience immeasurably more. And then he goes on, he says this. He says, men of Israel, because that's who was gathered there, the men in Israel. Here are these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified him and killed him. We're going to come back to that, but circle it in your Bible. It says, you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death, because it was not possible for death to keep his hold on him or for him to be held by it. What is this? It's the gospel. It is the good news of Jesus. Remember, he's preaching to a Jewish crowd. He's preaching to people who are living this story in real time. But this is the gospel. We love to make it more complicated. Honestly, if it were any more complicated, I might not be qualified to preach it. See what Peter says. He says, Jesus was a man from Nazareth. He was a real man. Like, you know where he's from. You could throw a stone from here and you could find his birthplace. You know his family. You knew this Jesus. He's not some mysterious magic man, some myth. He was here walking in our midst. God accomplished signs and wonders through him. Some of the crowd that was gathered there, they might have been the beneficiary of some of those signs. We don't know. There might have been a a man walking in the crowd that was paralyzed and Jesus healed or a blind man who was seeing for the first time. But Peter says the signs that took place these last three years, those things that have been talked about all across the town and beyond, that was Jesus. That's the Jesus we're talking about. All of this happened according to God's sovereign plan. And then he says, you killed him. Again, we're going to come back to that, but God raised him. Jesus is real. He really lived. You killed him. God raised him. This is the good news. This is the gospel. And here's the thing. It's the good news because it's true. We talk about the gospel all the time, and we might think about it as this ancient story that has no real significance in everyday life, but it's good news because it really happened. Think about the crowd that was hearing this for the first time. They were in the city where Jesus was crucified 50 days before. Like Peter is preaching this sermon. If they thought Jesus was still in the tomb, all they would have to do is gather a few people. There's a few million people gathered in Jerusalem. A few of them would have to go to the tomb and say, you're crazy, Peter. Jesus is right here. Here's his body. Here's his bones. But they didn't do that. 
There was no objection because the people knew it was real. Jesus, we read other, in other places in the Bible that Jesus appeared to a host of people after his resurrection. It wasn't just his friends. There was that one appearance where it was 500 people at one time. If I came to you and I say, I saw Jesus, you think you ate something funny yesterday. But 500 people don't share the same vision, right? Like it had to be real. There was evidence. There was witnesses. Jesus' body wasn't there. We're going to skip ahead to verse 32. It says, this Jesus, he continues, God raised up, and of this we are all witnesses. Again, he says, we saw him, we touched him, we ate with him, might have smelled him, right? This was a real Jesus. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, then having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. He's trying to explain what Jesus is doing in their midst. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain. Remember, he says this is real. You can know for certain that God made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now this is, this is, very theologically rich, and we don't have time to unpack it all, but what he's preaching about is the enthronement of Jesus. So often we read the story of Jesus, and we want to figure out, what does this mean for me? And we will get there, because it means everything for us. But Peter's, the high point of Peter's sermon was the enthronement of Jesus, not the atoning work of Jesus. If God raised Jesus from the dead, as Jesus promised, if God seated him at his right hand, if there were eyewitnesses, If Jesus is who Jesus says he was, if Jesus did what Jesus said he could do, if there is evidence for the people to know with certainty that these things actually took place, then they could put their trust in Jesus for everything that Jesus had for them. We said last week Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God, that he's a king to be obeyed, to be followed, to be submitted to. And then we have to deal with the uncomfortable fact that Peter says twice now in a very short sermon, this Jesus whom you what? Crucified. Like, Peter keeps bringing that up. This Jesus whom you crucified. First of all, like, as a preacher, I start to think, Peter, what are you doing? Don't you know that people like to come to church for three quick, easy steps to become a better Christian and get to lunch before the church next door? Why would you say something so convicting, so sharp, so pointed? Why would you literally point at the people you're preaching to and say, you crucified Jesus? When the truth is, In that crowd that was gathered there, there probably weren't many people that were there when Jesus was crucified. Certainly no one drove the nails into his hands. That was the Romans. There might have been a few locals who were still around that were there in the crowd when Jesus said, crucify him, or when they shouted, crucify him, crucify him. But this was probably, the Passover crowd had gone home and the Pentecost crowd had come. And so so Peter keeps saying, like, you crucified Jesus. I imagine the temperature started to rise a little bit. They're like, what do you mean we crucified Jesus? We weren't here. I love, here's the thing, like, I love... When something goes wrong at my house and I have an alibi, like I don't do a lot to upset Carissa, I'm like the perfect husband, but when that time does come, like she'll get, she'll say something, it's like, I've got an alibi, I've got an alibi, I always have an alibi. But a few days ago, she woke up and uh, she was getting ready and we were doing our morning routine. I brought her coffee like I've done every day for nine years, except for like once, nine days, I said, here's the coffee, and I gave her a kiss, and I said, it is so good to see you, beautiful girl, and you know, just like the perfect husband, and she gave me the cold shoulder. I was like, 
I've been up for 15 minutes. You've been up for five minutes. Like, what, in the, what could go wrong? And like, I was like, I just kind of blew it off. I went back to my work and came back later. And, and she's like more visibly frustrated. I finally said, hey, before we get to work and, you know, like the nanny arrives and this becomes a scene, do you mind if I ask, like, what did I, what did I do wrong? Like, is something bothering you? She's like, I'm fine. Okay. And like, I, I dug a little bit more. I brought her more coffee because caffeine, you know. And, uh, and she's like, did you cheat on me? I was like, uh, not that I remember. Why do you say that? And she says, no, I'm pretty sure you cheated on me. And I was like, what are you talking about? Why? You were at that restaurant, and there was another girl there, and you cheated on me. I said, I've never been to that restaurant. I've got an alibi. I would never go there. And she's like, well, maybe I was dreaming. And I was like, yeah, if you think I'm out of trouble, right? Like, that, the day was not going to get better. And I was like, yeah, you probably were dreaming because I – but you did say she was cute the other day. Therefore, it's still your fault, right? And I was like, man, I'm just like, there's always a way that it's my fault. And I say that because some of you husbands have that same experience where you get in trouble for something they dreamed up. But also, I think that's something that, like, to the effect of what Peter is saying, these people weren't the ones that were there driving the nails into Jesus' hands. But they had sinned upstream. Whether or not they were there when Jesus was crucified on the cross, it was their sin that led Jesus to be nailed to the cross. And he wanted them to see that even if they didn't feel like they were responsible, that it was their sin that put Jesus there. That's what Peter's saying here. Whether you were here or not, it was your sin that had Jesus nailed to the cross. And if that's true for them, it's true for us. Here are these scriptures, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. The same Peter would write a letter to the church uh, a few years later to explain this kind of concept. He said, he himself, meaning Jesus, bore what? Our sins. Our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus was nailed to the cross because of your sins and mine. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, the apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth. He says the second time, for our sake, it's for us. He made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This was always God's plan. Even the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, before Jesus was ever born, it says, but he, Jesus, was pierced. See how Isaiah, is made, he's so confident in God's plan. He's, saying it, he's speaking in the past tense as if it's already happened. But he, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And here's the thing. Even if like when Peter starts pointing at us and saying, hey, you crucified Jesus, even if it kind of rubs us the wrong way, I think we kind of know it's true. Like we know, even if you don't believe in Jesus, I'm not presuming you believe in Jesus, but you know that somewhere along the way, your life has gotten off track. And you know, you might not be ready to admit it yet, but you know that your life isn't going the way you hoped it would go. Maybe relationships aren't working out the way you'd hoped. Maybe your career isn't on track. Maybe your family is more strained. Maybe finances. Like, you know that somewhere along the way, your, your life has gotten off track. And we call what gets us off track and what separates us from God sin. And it is our sin that put Jesus on the cross. Mel Gibson's only appearance in the movie he directed, The Passion, for, uh, the Passion of the Christ, was a shot of his hands driving the nails into Jesus' hands. Because as he was producing the movie, he didn't want it to be about him, but he wanted a visual reminder that it was his sins that drove the nails through Jesus' hands. It was our sin. It was my sin. It was your sin. It was our sin and our selfishness, our idol- 
excuse me, our idolatry, our strife, our jealousy, our anger, our rivalry, our dissension, our envy, and things like these that put Jesus on the cross. And when Peter is preaching the first gospel sermon, he doesn't shy away from the fact that the good news of Jesus follows the hard things to hear about who we are. Verse 37, now when they, the crowd, heard these things, it says they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? That phrase, cut to the heart, we call it conviction. It's when you hear the gospel, it's when you read the scripture, it's when you sing the songs that make much of Jesus, it's when you have contact, conversations with a community group and the thing, making much of God, and you just feel somewhere I've gotten off track and I'm cut to the heart. I'm conviction. I'm convicted. And I say it all the time, conviction isn't fun. It's not comfy, but it compels us to our Savior. It's like when something goes wrong in our body and we feel a pain and we go to the doctor and they find uh, cancer and they, they cut it out. And it's like, man, I really hate that my pain, but I'm grateful for it because it helped me cut, find, identify the bigger thing that was killing me from the inside out so it could be cut out. That's conviction. The crowd hears the gospel. They're convicted. They're cut to the heart. They say to Peter and the rest of the apostles, hey, we don't know what's going on here, but you seem like you're speaking for God. So brothers, what do we do? It's a very simple question. They're humbled, they're convicted, and they say, brothers, what do we do? And Peter, first to speak, said to them, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, it's for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. I love verses like that because it reminds us that this story wasn't just for the ancient Jews. Like right here as he's preaching for the very first time, he says, this is for you, it's for me, and it's for everyone that God is going to draw to himself through his church. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and, those, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, here's what I want to say. I don't think there is a more straightforward scripture in all of the Bible that has been more misconstrued and more misunderstood for all of church history. Because churches will take a verse like this, or they'll take a concept like baptism, or how do we respond to the gospel, and they will split, and they will split again, and they'll split again, and they'll split again, and they'll split again, until we have 17 million different denominations spread over the world. The, the truth is, when, when the people were cut to the heart by the gospel, we overcomplicate the process, but they simply said, if I'm on the wrong side of God, and Jesus is at God's right hand, and I realize that somehow, whether I understand it or not, my sin put him on the cross, all of this is because of me, and I want to get on God's side, what do I do? And Peter just said, well, you repent, you turn from the life you're living, you just simply admit that, hey, my life hasn't worked, this led me to kill Jesus, I'm going to start doing things God's way, I'm going to take a step in his direction, I'm going to change my affections, and I'm going to set them on Jesus, and then you're baptized, which literally means to dip, dunk, or plunge, right? Like, that's what the Greek word means, to dip, dunk, or plunge, it was a laundry term to take and submit to immerse under water. So the question is, are you, Adam, telling me, I know we come from a lot of different traditions, that, I have, that I'm safe from my sins when I get baptized? And the answer is always no. I am not telling you that. Peter is telling you that when he's full of the Holy Spirit, right? Nope, I'm not telling you that. God's telling you that through his word. Where? Right here. I don't understand it, but here's what I came to learn this week. And I want to share this with you because I, I came to understand. I was like, Lord, I need to understand how the church has gotten so far off track in regards to this. I think... 
we want to understand everything that takes place before we take a step. Like, I think we want to wrap our mind fully around it. What did, which led me to this question, what did the crowd in, in the day of Pentecost know when Peter said, repent and be baptized? They knew that the Holy Spirit was at work, that Jesus was a real man, that he was crucified on a cross, that he was buried in a tomb, that he was raised from the dead, that he spent some time with a group of people that could testify to his life, his resurrection, that he had ascended back to the Father's right hand, that somehow that meant they were on the wrong side of God, and they wanted to get on God's side. And they took a step of faith, and they got baptized. It doesn't talk in here about imputed righteousness. It doesn't talk in here about God's spirit. Well, it does talk about his spirit dwelling in us, but it doesn't unpack all of it. And so I think the church came forward that very first sermon, and they gave their faith to Jesus, and they realized, I don't know everything that's about to take place, but I want Jesus, and I want to be on Jesus' side. And I know that they didn't know, because every epistle that the, that the apostles wrote, Peter and Paul and John, talks about baptism. And I love how he says it to the church in Colossae. If you've got your Bible, Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. Remember, this is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in Colossae. It showed up one day. Hey, we've got this letter from the Apostle Paul. He's inspired by the Holy Spirit. The church gathers together, and they read the letter. And they get to this part. It says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So who's he writing to? To people who have received Jesus, right? You've already received Jesus. Now continue to walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So Paul's clarifying right at the beginning, hey, you've already put your faith in Jesus, just continue to walk in the direction that he's leading you. So see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Have you ever been guilty of overthinking your faith? Like, okay, now I really want to unpack this. Paul says, hey, be careful that when you start thinking, you don't get led astray by something that seems too good to be true. Uh, for in him... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So he's talking about who Jesus is and what Jesus does, that he fills us with the Spirit. In him also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, that there is a covenant relationship going on. There is evidence on your heart to show that it's true. Hear what he says, having what? been buried with him in baptism. What blew me away this week as I was reading this is he's talking past tense. Peter, I'm sorry, Paul to the church at Colossae is explaining what took place when they were baptized, meaning he's filling in gaps that they didn't know when they took a step of faith. So often, even myself, I think, man, if someone wants to put their faith in Jesus, I need to explain to them every single nuance of faith. But Peter didn't. He just said, this is who Jesus is. This is how you get in good with him. Repent and be baptized. So he goes on, he says, In him you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. I think he goes on. I don't think that's the end of the letter. And you, who were dead in your trespasses, the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. He's talking about salvation. Go ahead. Having forgiven us of all of our trespasses, forgiving our sins by canceling the record of the debt that stood against us with its legal demands, Christ, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross, meaning like Jesus took our sin debt and he paid for it. So Peter's, or I'm sorry, Paul, again, is filling in the gaps here. And then it says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, that he gives us victory over spiritual things. Paul would write another letter to the church in Rome and to a group of people who are trying to figure out faith but have already put their faith in Jesus. He says, do you not know 
that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that this is what took place. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in a newness of life. Like, we spend, here, here was my conviction. We spend so much time splitting churches and fighting over the most gracious invitation in the history of the world. That we've gotten sidetracked, we've gotten lost in our sin, we've pursued ourselves and our own desires, and Jesus came to set us right with God. How do we do that? We repent and be baptized. I told you guys the story of Acts is the story of God building his church and the special privilege we have to play a part in it. I have grown up learning this text. I grew up in a great church. We preach this text sometimes before we preach the gospel text. Like, this is the story we, we, we went to. I've led people, I've learned it, I've led people to it. But there is no, and I mean this, there is no greater privilege than watching God work this text out in everyday life. We get uh, a front row seat. This, this is my story, right? I, the Holy Spirit was at work. I was convicted. I was compelled to my Savior. It happened for me when I was nine years old. For some of you, it's a different story. Some of you, God is doing that right now. You feel the conviction. You're kind of like trying to tamp it down, trying to figure out what it means. But you know your life might have to change if you put your faith in Jesus, and you're just not ready for that. This is my story. This is your story. But there has been nothing more exciting, I'd say, than over the last few weeks. I've gotten the privilege to watch God work this story out in the life of our friend Sarah. I know we're a small church. Many of you know Sarah. We'll share her story in just a moment. But this is her story. This is our story. Every week, we gather together to make much of God. And we ask himself to make himself known to us, and we watch him work. We watch him take the lead to lead people to experience immeasurably more. I'm going to pray, and we're going to invite Sarah out. She's going to share her story, and then we get to celebrate with her. Father, man, we are so thankful for your goodness and grace. What a privilege it is today to gather together as your people to make much of you. It is only by your goodness and grace that we are able to be here. And uh, Father, we're looking back at the, the story as it's being written in real time. And we come to you from a variety of different faith backgrounds and traditions and denominations and ideas. And I, I pray, Father, that as we make our way through this text and through this story, that you would just give us a humble spirit to hear what you have to say, to submit ourselves to the scripture. Father, every week as I sit down with your word, I ask you to correct me where I'm thinking incorrectly about your word. But Father, all of this we do so that we can experience the sanctifying power of your Holy Spirit in our life and we can watch the overflow of your Holy Spirit poured out from our church into the lives of those that you are drawing near so that they can experience immeasurably more. Father, we are so thankful that we serve a God who sent his son to live, to die, to rise again, to send his spirit so that we might find life through him. It is in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.